0: It is Donald Trump's final day in office and as the removal vans arrive at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, we'll look ahead to his successor's inauguration day tomorrow. One of the flagship tournaments in world tennis is in a bit of a bounce as more players test positive for the coronavirus ahead of the Australian Open. And as Canada's national broadcaster makes moves to set up its own creative agency, not everyone is happy to see this treasured national brand's foray into the world of paid Content. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today are Monocle's Europe editor at large. He's in Milan for us and by Daniel Bache, the host and the producer of the entrepreneurs here on Monocle 24. He's in London for us. Ed, Daniel, terrific as always to have you both on the programme today. How are your respective work weeks shaping up for you so far? Ed, let's start with you.
1: Yeah, we head into our production week next week. So so lots of busy times coming up over the next 10 days or so, Tom.
0: All hands on deck. I'm sure it'll be Ed. And Daniel in London, how are you doing? How are things shaping up for you there?
2: I uh, can't complain. Uh, well, I could complain about the weather, Tomas. quite cold uh, and grey these days, but uh, keeping my head down, lots going on. Of course, the big story we are about to talk about, that being the U.S. inauguration, will be a big part of our radio broadcast for the next couple of days lots of coverage planned on that uh, so have been keeping busy setting things up and and putting all the pieces into play for the next three days
0: Well, look forward to hearing the fruits of your labours, Daniel, over the coming days. It's great to have you and you, Ed Stocker, with us on the programme. Today, well, as Daniel mentioned, let's begin in the United States, where the final day of Donald Trump's tumultuous term in the White House is underway. In less than 24 hours' time, his successor, Joe Biden, will be sworn in as the 46th President of the United States at an inauguration ceremony unlike any other that's been staged in living memory. And while there won't be a single member of the public on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. tomorrow, Joe Biden's inaugural address will have to touch on an unprecedented array of themes and subjects that are currently roiling so many aspects of life in so many parts of the country. Well, let's begin by hearing from Jonathan Haidt. He is a social psychologist and professor in ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He spoke to us about how tomorrow's ceremony might play in the eyes of those who voted for Joe Biden and for those who didn't.
3: There's a very important finding from behavior genetic studies in the 1980s, which is that almost every trait is heritable. If you look at identical twins reared apart, they tend to be similar on religiosity, on left-right politics, on whether they like jazz versus classical. So your political orientation is you're predisposed to lean left or right. And we know that there are a lot of psychological differences between people who are predisposed to lean left and right. One of them that my colleagues and I have found in what we call moral foundations theory, we look at, five to seven different moral foundations, which are kind of like taste buds with a moral sense. And people who who lean right tend to have more respect for authority. They see the world as threatening and dangerous. They believe that we need authority figures. We need the police to prevent society from going to the dogs. And they tend to see more value in traditions and existing institutions and order. So you might say, how on earth could conservatives be attacking the Capitol smearing feces in the hallways, some of them defecated, uh, taking down the American flag and putting up the Trump flag. How is this possible? And what I would say is that there is a conservative mind, which is what I described before, which is hesitant to change existing orders. And then there is a psychology of authoritarianism. Here I'm drawing on the work of Karen Stenner, a political scientist that there are uh, about 30 percent of people in western societies are predisposed to authoritarianism which means that they're not necessarily racist or intolerant in general but when they perceive that society is coming apart or when they're told that our leaders are betraying us when they see a threat to the, the moral order as they perceive it it's like someone pushed a button on their forehead and then a lot of things change and they become much more tribal and responsive to, to demagoguery and, and more racist, homophobic, all those sorts of things. Now, a lot about the modern world triggers the authoritarian reflex, the news ecosystem, outrage media, and certainly Donald Trump, from the day he announced his campaign talking about Mexican rapists coming over the border people, through last week when he best. said, you've got to they're fight like hell if you want to take our country back. Trump has been just activating authoritarianism all the way through.
1: We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved.
3: So the mindset we saw in Washington was not the conservative mindset. I would say it was more an authoritarian uh, mindset. Now, there's authoritarianism on the left. So far, I've been obviously criticizing the right because that's behind the craziness in the Capitol. There's illiberalism on both sides. Uh, If we're talking about universities, then it's going to be more a problem caused by the left. But I believe, I'm a centrist politically, I believe that the problems in our country, in the United States, Uh, have been more the fault of the Republicans in that they have radicalized more. Beginning in the 1990s with Fox News, they moved pretty far to the right, and now with the conspiracy theories, QAnon and Trump. So I do think that in our national politics, uh, the Republicans bear much more blame. And I think we saw what happens when they lose touch with reality last Wednesday. Can you give us a question? Don't be, no, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. Can you stay categorical? You are fake news. So if I had to put all my money on either a great leader or on reforms to institutions and processes, I'll put all my money on the second one. So leadership does matter a lot, but the way that Biden could have a lasting effect would be by reforming certain processes. The biggest problems we have is our closed party primaries. So the worst number of parties to have in a country is one, that's really bad. But the second worst number is two. And in America, we have two. And so it's incredibly binary, incredibly hostile. Each party nominates someone to run for a seat in Congress, and most of the districts are not really competitive between Republicans and Democrats, so the general election doesn't really matter. Everything is about the primary. And one thing that we're hearing a lot since last week is that most of the Republican congressmen know that Biden won the election. They know that. President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence deserve our thanks and our gratitude for their tireless work and their essential roles in all these victories and in many more. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. The President-elect is no stranger to the Senate. He's devoted himself to public service for many years. They don't dare say it because they're afraid it'll be used against them in the primary. They have to run for office every two years. So our closed party primaries, most states have closed party primaries, and that leads to that leads to elected representatives who are not representing their district. They're catering to the extreme of their party. So that's just one example. But there's so much else that we could do to bring more moderate leaders. If we had, if we had more moderate congresspeople and senators who could work together and model bipartisanship, uh, that would be a huge lasting legacy if Biden could initiate processes of reform to how we do policy. Because it's crazy what we're doing. I mean, Congress has no ability to find the truth or good policy. It's all just fighting each other. And then the president issues executive orders where he's supposed to go through Congress. And both Obama and Trump did this. Um, George W. Bush did it. So our governing system in the United States is really messed up. And if Biden could uh, start a process of reform to that, and then he'd also have to look at the informational ecosystem and social media and journalism, where we're very limited what we can do in the United States because of the First Amendment. But those are the sorts of reforms that I think would lead to an improvement over time. Most people are not partisans. I mean, they lean one way maybe, but they're, they believe in compromise. They're pretty reasonable. Uh, they don't think people should um, you know, be canceled for what they say. So you've got this exhausted majority so whichever party brings them in is going to win. So the the right is split between you know the more authoritarians and the and the Burkean conservatives I don't know which way that's going to go, but at least now the conflict is out in the open since last week. But the left is of course split between the sort of the woke left or the or the far left and more traditional left or what I would call liberal left. They believe in liberal institutions, liberal democracy. So how will the Biden administration change this? Well, first Biden's a pretty moderate guy. He's, you know, he would he's in that second group, the uh, traditional liberals, uh, I believe. And he worked in the Senate for a long time. He's very good at compromise. He's got great interpersonal skills. So simply removing Trump, if we can truly remove him, it's simply getting Trump out, is gonna bring the temperature way down. Trump really riled up his own base and he really riled up the left. The right complains about Trump derangement syndrome, which is a real thing. Um, we can't think straight with Trump in the picture. And so if, if, if Trump really does leave public life, which probably won't happen entirely, I think the temperature will go down on both sides. Then eyes will turn to the Democrats. How are the Democrats going to lead? And will it be the uh, you know, the more woke left that gets control of policy? If so, that will really alienate the middle. And, and if the Republicans could come up with a reasonable candidate in 2024, most people hate political correctness. They hate wokeness. They could be lured over to the right if the Republicans can get their act together. If more the Biden wing solidifies its control uh, and it's pragmatic, uh, then I think the Democrats will succeed in building this big tent. I think they'll succeed in delivering results on the pandemic, on the economy. So I'm I'm hopeful, but boy, things could go really badly.
0: Jonathan Haidt there, speaking to Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermack. Ed Stocker, in Milan, you reported on Donald Trump's inauguration four years ago. I'm not sure if they feel like a long four years or a very swift set of years, Ed, but what do you make of how the ceremony tomorrow will be staged and how it might play, as we heard Jonathan Haidt explain in some detail there, how it might play in this divisive moment in the United States?
1: I, yeah, I don't know the answer if it feels it feels both like a very long time and a short time at, at the same time somehow. But yes, I was in Washington at the inauguration on that rather damp day. I just remember those words striking me when Donald Trump talked about American carnage and just the sort of dark nature of that speech uh, it, it was really something else. And we just wondered what else was to come. It, obviously, it got everyone talking media and public and uh, set us off on uh, on four years of, of turmoil, really. Um, look, it's going to be very different this time around, isn't it? We've got over 20,000 people. Uh, members of the National Guard who are going to be in DC. So, you know, the city from all the images we've been seeing is kind of on lockdown. So that's going to be different. Obviously, coronavirus restrictions will mean, you know, there's no crowd, um, people being urged to watch it virtually at home. Donald Trump won't be there. The first president to miss out on this changing of the guard in, in, you know, over a century and change. Um, so there are plenty of reasons to mean that this is going to be unlike any other. And of course, Joe Biden will probably be looking to mend uh, some of those wounds to bring Americans together. He's tried to do that over the last few weeks. And so I think he'll be trying to strike uh, that tone and also decisively move away from the Trump years, Tom.
0: And Daniel, just briefly to you, Canada, your home Turf will be watching tomorrow's ceremony closely, as it always does every inauguration day. What do you think that people in Canada will be looking for from uh, President Joe Biden, as he will be tomorrow when he speaks at his inauguration ceremony?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, this will be widely watched around the world, but uh, very closely in Canada, where I think people will be looking, Tom, for some stern language from Joe Biden and and wondering what sort of tone he'll set moving forward and where Canada uh, plays a role in the relationship uh, with the U.S. as it tries to uh, rebuild and and relaunch itself going back out into the world. Of course, there are a lot of important things like the border and trade. Uh, Donald Trump was able to rework NAFTA. So that is uh, taken care of for now. There are a few things that Joe Biden has on his agenda for the first uh, weeks and days in office, and and a big one of those is the Keystone XL pipeline. So uh, I think people might be watching to see what he has to say about climate, and uh, if that pushes... Uh, the government in Ottawa a little bit um, which has been heavily criticized recently for uh, not uh, really being up to speed or, or doing what it takes to uh, be at the table with all the other uh, big global countries. so I, I think that uh, Tomas is what we'll be looking for uh, and uh, what he uh, and if he mentions Canada at all I don't know if it's if it's custom to do that but uh, we are the closest partner so we'll see what he says tomorrow Tomas
0: We will indeed see what he says, Daniel. And do be sure to join us for full reaction and coverage of the inauguration tomorrow and in the coming days, as Daniel mentioned earlier, here on Monocle 24. But next, the 2021 Australian Open is scheduled to be played from the 8th to the 21st of February. But now 72 international players are confined to their hotel rooms in Melbourne for 14 days after some passengers on their charter flights to Victoria tested positive for the coronavirus. Add to that training regimes that involve weightlifting with hotel room chairs and even mattresses, and the sight of some of the world's best tennis players practising their shots by bouncing tennis balls off their hotel room walls. Well, Karen Middleton is the Saturday Paper's chief political correspondent. She's based in Canberra, and she had more for us on this extraordinary Australian Open and the lead-up to it on today's edition of The Globalist.
4: People are wondering about what's being seen as a double standard. Now the tournament is very important economically to the city of Melbourne and the state of Victoria and it has been shifted back. It was originally supposed to be on around about now. It's been shifted back to next month to allow more time for this quarantine process to take place and to be absolutely sure that when people actually take to the tennis court that they're not there's no risk of infection. But it does look a little strange to people who are trying to get back from overseas. There are some 40,000 Australians trying to get back from other countries who've been un- unable to because of the restrictions on incoming numbers and the restrictions on quarantine. And, and a lot of the airlines are charging exorbitant fares to get back and that they're seeing these highly paid tennis players come in and then complain about the quality of the food. Or in the case of um, Bernard Tomic's girlfriend, that she doesn't usually wash her own hair and she didn't want to do that herself. So, you know you can you can imagine how that's going over in a straight talking country like ours
0: Karen Middleton there speaking to us from Canberra a little earlier today Daniel the organisers of the Australian Open are really battling several issues here aren't they but they're not suggesting at this stage that the tournament will have to be called off entirely or even postponed even further
2: yeah, not at this stage, Tomas. I think they are all in at this moment and really just in full damage control uh, with <laughs> with the Australian public. Uh, the issues that Karen pointed out there are Almost incredible to think of uh, 40,000 people not being able to travel home uh, because of the restrictions and then uh, all these people flying in to to play in a tennis tournament. Obviously, it's it's big for the image of Australia. It's going to be very different this year because uh, uh, the fans aren't there. But uh, I think this raises a, a lot of questions on why the, the tournament was allowed to go ahead with all of these restrictions that are in place, it's a big tournament, so hard to organize. But I think back to uh, a tournament that went off very successfully, and that was over Christmas per- uh, period in Canada. I don't know if you're up to this tradition yet, Tomas. And that is uh, every sort of Boxing Day, the World Junior Ice Hockey Tournament begins, and, and it's quite often hosted in Canada. They headed in Edmonton this year, and you had players from all over the world flying in, and there was a, a lot of controversy because people are saying, well, they're going to mix with the public and that's going to uh, create an issue. But all the people that flew in went straight into a bubble and they didn't leave for the entire tournament. They have rigid testing uh, and the players and the teams understand the rules very clearly there was a there was a big problem when three of the teams uh, were put on the same charter to come over from Europe, and a lot of those players ended up testing positive in a similar scenario to what we're seeing in Australia, but they were swiftly uh, put into quarantine and and they had to deal with that um, you know the other way that the they could go ahead with this is to um have rigid testing and then allow the players that are, are free and clear to, to go ahead. Um, and that everyone else has, has to wait their turn until they've they've done their quarantine. But I, I don't think there should be any loosening of the rules unless they're uh, uh, willing to, to create a bubble like scenario like we've seen in other professional sports, but this will continue to be a controversy if international sport is being uh, being played. Abroad
0: and Ed, as Daniel outlined there, the Australian open is a, is a hugely important flagship moment each year for Australia. As a whole. But I wonder if some of the gripes that we've heard that Karen Middleton outlined there about washing your own hair, or Novak Djokovic, who's also been complaining about the quality of the room service he's been getting, which hasn't made him many friends in Melbourne or in Australia more broadly, as far as I can see. Do you think that there's a risk that, you know, the this consternation it might create um, at home might sort of overshadow the whole point of staging something like the Australian Open in the first place?
1: Yeah, I think you're right in many ways because the headlines aren't, you know, the actual tennis. It's everything that's happening in and around the event which is still some days off. Um you know, look lots of great sort of video moments of players uh, practicing in their hotel rooms and sort of hitting spots marked on the windows of said hotel rooms but it's also opening up divisions it's causing tensions you mentioned Djokovic obviously the world's um number one player from Serbia and he's he's been critical of of uh, of the restrictions and says that they should be eased for the players you know you also have what seems to be coming out of this is sort of camps dividing as to what should be the right approach which causes extra tension and don't forget that Djokovic organized an exhibition match in the summer in Serbia and Croatia and after that a number of people tested positive for coronavirus himself included so I think he's got that reputation to deal with as well. Um, Let's just hope that everything can be sorted out so that you know All these uh, things that are happening around the competition can be dealt with and we can go back to what everyone wants to do, which will be hopefully soon celebrating both the players and the tournament itself.
0: Well, we will have full coverage and we'll be keeping our eyes on the extraordinary run-up to an extraordinary tennis competition, the Australian Open, in the coming days and weeks here on Monocle 24. But finally here on today's edition of the Late Edition, Canada's national broadcaster, the CBC, has unveiled plans to establish a sister creative agency – Tandem, which will create paid for branded content for what it hopes will be a range of clients and will provide a much needed additional stream of revenue for the corporation. Some aren't happy, however, and claim that a commercially focused agency is at odds with the journalistic principles of a treasured national institution like the CBC. Uh, Daniel, to start with you, the CBC is your former employer. So round up if you could for us what the CBC's motives are here and what the action has been and why it's been so febrile from so many quarters.
2: Yeah, a very interesting one to watch, Tomás. And I have been watching very closely, of course. Uh, a lot of my former uh, colleagues and friends are the ones that uh, signed on to a, a letter calling for the public broadcaster to scrap this idea. CBC has been very clear to point out that they they have been doing paid content for for 4 or 5 years now and of course uh, there is an argument to be made about uh, their commercial viability and uh, and and if they can continue to uh, keep the CBC afloat because there's only a fixed uh, budget from the government, and I think it's interesting. It's important to put the the CBC into context for for global listeners. Um, it's it's a public broadcaster done a little bit differently. In the United States, you you have more of a philanthropy model, I think, and, and there there is some advertising. Uh, in Europe, the funding is is far higher, and people have a clear understanding of what the public broadcaster is there to do, and that is standalone from from other private entities but there there has been some sort of confusion in recent years on uh, CBC's moves uh, to get uh, to expand its its portfolio let's say and and this new uh, enterprise uh, called tandem I think um, isn't really helping the CBC's case and I'll, t- I'll tell you why uh, the tagline is working together to tell your story so this is uh, the CBC acting as sort of a, a content a digital content agency to create Uh, works for uh, high-paying clients. If you take a look at their Twitter feed right now, they've got um, paid advertisements for Athabasca University, Dell, uh, and uh, very notably Tim Hortons, which we talked about before uh, we came on the show. I think... What the CBC is saying, and, and Catherine Tate, the, the president who we've had on uh, the Monocle 24 airwaves a, a few times, uh, she said that there will be a guardrail, clear guardrail between uh, these, these different uh, uh, agencies, let's say, that act under uh, the CBC's mandate. On one side, you have uh, the great journalism that, that Canadians know the company for. And on the other side, you have commercial advertising. But I think there's a lot of concerns that those lines will be completely blurred. And I totally understand they need to make money, but uh, I think there there needs to be a hard
1: line drawn. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think, yes, uh, you know, call it advertorials, native advertising. This is increasingly a part of uh, the media landscape, and it's how lots of publications make some revenue but you know the point you made about it being a public service broadcaster I think that's the reason that people are up in arms now I'm no expert but about their their funding model so I don't know how it works is there a question mark there about them needing to perhaps be receiving more money from Canada from the state in order not to have to do that I think what's worrying some people is that blurring of the lines being a public service broadcaster so if there's a way that uh, you know it can reassure people and also a way of perhaps i don't know create, creating some of that division between cbc uh, it's news and, and this part of the business uh, difficult questions because you know cbc is facing realities like all media outlets are uh, but hopefully they'll be able to find a way through this that that keeps all the stakeholders if you like happy
0: well, Ed Stocker and Daniel Beach, two figures who always add Sheen to the Late Edition's own brand here at Monocle 24. That's all we have time for for today's programme. A big thank you to the two of you for being with us on the show today. A big thank you too to Sam Impey. She edited today's programme in London. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow for a special edition of the programme to mark Inauguration Day in the United States. Do join us then if you can. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening